Lindsay O'Donnell Welch with Decipher, and I'm here today with David Agranovich, Director of Threat Disruption with Meta. David, thanks so much for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Lindsay. Yeah, so we were just talking, you're based around San Francisco, and in addition to specializing in offensive counterintelligence and previously serving in the U.S. government as an expert on Russian foreign policy and intelligence issues. I have, I saw that you are actually also a certified flight instructor. That's pretty cool. <laughs> That's right. That's what keeps me sane. Yeah. I teach folks how to fly planes. Do you do that on the side or? I do. I do. It's a, it's a good way to get away from some of the cybersecurity work and both teach flying and then also uh, do some rescue kind of medical flights and relocation for dogs and such around California. Oh, wow. That's awesome. So you're a dog person. then. That's always good to know. (laughs) Awesome. So just, you know, backing up a little bit, can you talk a little bit about how you first got into cybersecurity? Is this something you've always wanted to do? I know there are, you know, a multitude of different paths into this industry. So I was I was dead set on becoming a lawyer when I was still in college. And then through the course of learning a couple of languages, I'd studied Russian and Chinese and Spanish in college, ended up uh, doing research into kind of broader geopolitical issues and got kind of fell in love with trying to understand these complex geopolitical systems. So I started working on research mainly into kind of Russian foreign policy. And then around 2015, found myself working on cybersecurity issues, specifically around Russia, which coincided with our detection of Russia's military intelligence service, the GRU, uh, attempting to steal information from the Democratic National Committee, the DNC, ahead of the 2016 elections. And so that, I think, was what really got me interested in the effects of cybersecurity and how to more effectively uh, kind of work on the defensive side of cybersecurity, both how to protect institutions, whether those are elections or organizations, and how to understand the threat actors who are behind offensive cybersecurity activity. Right. And I'm sure, you know, working at Meta, you know, you kind of have the that type of intersection when you're looking at those two different things as well. And I know you previously were part of kind of the U.S. government strategy to counter foreign, these types of foreign influences um, as director for intelligence at the National Security Council. Can you talk a little bit about those experiences and particularly at the DOD and the National Security Council, really how that helped you shape your current role in threat disruption? Definitely. Um, so, so my own journey, I think, to this type of threat disruption work, as you noted, in 2016 and 2017, focused on how to create a comprehensive strategy for countering foreign malign influence, right? Both how to defend institutions, um, make them more resilient to targeting by cyber actors, for example, and how to kind of create that cross-societal effort to push back on these types of influence operations. And we saw this for example, in the in and around um, Russia's use of a nerve agent in Salisbury to poison a guy named Sergei Skripal. Um, after that occurred, there was a, this concerted multi-nation effort um, to push back through diplomatic channels, right? Expelling, for example, Russian inf- intelligence officers around the world um, that was met 
by a concerted effort to kind of shift the narrative around who may have really been responsible for those actions. And what was effective there was the ability to respond quickly, to pull different parts of society together uh, in that response, um, and to do so kind of from a position of authenticity and, and truth, right? The ability to tell people what really happened out there. Um, in 2018, I joined Meta, uh, at the time Facebook, um, to kind of help grow the work around coordinated inauthentic behavior. So this is the, the policy that Facebook created to go after, for example, Russia's internet research agency, uh, covert influence operations. Um, and during that period, um, you know, the company was focused on some very similar things, right? How to how to work across the industry, build partnerships with other companies that were trying to tackle similar problems, and partnerships with civil society, um, researchers, OSINT uh, investigators, who may have been out there looking at operations like this from a very different perspective, um, and create that coalition to be able to be more effective in pushing back against these clandestine influence operations. What grew out of that as well was the strategy that Meta brings to these problems, um, a combining kind of three core components. The first is disrupting these threats, right? So taking down networks engaged in, for example, clandestine influence operations um, and sharing information about what we're seeing publicly so that other people are able to um, understand and take action against those, those threats. Second, um, doing the work to try and build, for example, more resilience into our products, um, identifying trends from the bad actors that we see to make our products safer um, and more resilient to these types, of, these types of efforts. And third, working to enable cross-society action against these threats, right? So not just sharing information in our public reporting, but releasing, for example, specific data on threat actors, whether those are indicators of compromise or domains we see an influence operation using so that other companies um, and researchers can use that to build on that investigative work and hold these types of bad actors accountable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to your point for the, the latter objective there, I know that you started publishing these quarterly adversarial reports back in April of this year to kind of give a better look into these threats and the pol policy violations and malicious activity that you're viewing, you know, could you kind of give us like a, a behind the scenes look at the publishing of these reports? Like how is that data collected and aggregated and, you know, discussed and analyzed um, before you kind of come out with each of these reports? Totally. So we've been publishing um, kind of deep analytical reports into, for example, influence operations since 2017, um, when we first enforced on some of the Russian Internet Research Agency linked activity. Um, over time, we started publishing monthly reports into coordinated inauthentic behavior. And then, as you noted, more recently, we've been experimenting with expanding our public reporting to more areas in, in this quarterly reporting. Um, and the goal there is really to give people a comprehensive look into the different threats that we're countering globally under different security policies from cyber espionage activity to emerging threats like brigading and mass reporting to covert influence operations. And there's a couple of goals of this reporting, right? So the reason why we do this, one is to raise costs on threat actors. Right? We, we essentially want to blow the cover on clandestine operations, um, force threat actors to factor that risk into their own operational planning, um, second, enable a cross-society response. 
Increasingly, we see these operations leverage a large number of different platforms across the internet. And so by publishing these reports, one of our goals is to enable not just other companies, but perhaps moderators on a local neighborhood forum website or OSINT researchers to kind of pull these strings together and enforce where they can against this activity. Um, the, in general, I think we've also learned a lot from the reporting we've done about how to do this more effectively. Um, for example, a lot of our early reporting featured our own research and analysis into this activity. More recently, we've been adding uh, detailed threat indicators to our reporting. So something we learned from the cyber espionage space that including, for example, indicators of compromise or details about malware can be really effective. We're now trying to bring that to other areas, like for example, our work on countering influence operations. Mm-hmm. Right. That makes sense. And, you know, what stuck out to me about these reports, too, is that, and as you mentioned, this is something that does go back even before, you know, these were kind of published in quarterly form, but that we're we're seeing things like um, cyber espionage, malware attacks, um, all kinds of malicious behavior. Could you talk a little bit about the threats that you uh, find your team dealing with and, you know, why attackers are threat groups are attracted to, to Facebook and other social media platforms when it comes to this type of activity, even beyond um, misinformation or disinformation? Definitely. So our teams track and counter a, a wide range of threat actors. Um, a few that we're most focused on on the security side um, are influence operations, both clandestine and overt, um, espionage, cyber espionage activity and hacking, um, inauthentic behavior more broadly, which oftentimes overlaps with kind of spam and scam type activity. Um, and so since 2017, when we started enforcing uncoordinated inauthentic behavior, We've taken, found and taken down more than 150 of those operations around the world, right? So sophisticated efforts to manipulate and corrupt public debate. Um, the work we did on coordinated inauthentic behavior, I think, was what broke ground on our network disruption model. This idea that we can disrupt coordinated network activity by not just taking down a single account or a single piece of content, but by looking at the behavior of the entire network and then enforcing on that entire network at once and essentially try to deal the biggest blow to the threat actors possible. Um, some additional threats and kind of trends we're seeing across the threat space. The first is blurring the lines. And, and here what I really mean are the use of some of these, for example, the tactics that foreign influence operations were using in 2017, those same tactics being adopted by domestic operators. When we look at the 150 plus operations and 50 plus countries, 30 different languages we've taken down, roughly half of those are domestic, right? So operators who are located in the same country that they're targeting. That's particularly challenging because you know, our terms of service, our community standards are straightforward. When we see fake account networks trying to mislead people, we take them down. But the broader societal conversation around domestic actors using deceptive tactics is a lot murkier, particularly when it comes to discussions of, you know, the appropriate uh, way to approach political speech in a particular country. The second threat trend that we're seeing more of is threats for hire. And here, I think I'm really talking about two things. One is disinfo for hire. So these would be things like PR agencies and marketing firms that sell you know, influence operations as a service. The second would be um, surveillance for hire companies, like for example, NSO Group. Back in December, we released kind of a, a comprehensive report into surveillance for hire companies that 
focused on two particular risks that threats for hire present. The first is it democratizes access to these capabilities, right? So what was once the remit of governments uh, that you know engaged in hacking or influence activity are now accessible to anyone willing to pay for it. And then the second risk that, that threats for hire present is it hides who's ultimately behind the operation, right? By laundering their activity through one of these intermediary companies, it makes it a lot harder for defenders, our teams and others, to be able to identify who's actually running an influence operation or who's paying for that hacking service. The third trend I wanted to call out was blend, kind of blended operations. Um, this is where we're seeing influence operations and cyber espionage start to converge. An example would be Ghostwriter, which is a hacking group uh, based in Belarus. In February, when Russia's you know, whole full-scale invasion of Ukraine really kicked off, we saw Ghostwriter attempting to essentially hack the accounts. And by accounts here, I don't just mean Facebook accounts, but likely try to target the email accounts and devices of um, individuals in Ukraine, and then use access to those uh, email accounts to then steal access to all of their social media. But once they had hacked those social media accounts, they pivoted to do an, an influence operation, right? Posting content supportive of Russia's actions, trying to undermine Ukrainian military activity. Um, and so that I think is particularly important for us to focus on because protecting against blended operations requires not just investigations on a platform like ours, but it requires good cybersecurity hygiene, for example, on an email provider or on a device level uh, operating system um, company. Um, and then the last piece I wanted to highlight was we're seeing a kind of diversification of targets here. Um, in both the espionage and the influence operations space, we see targeting include, for example, journalists, dissidents, democracy activists, um, marginalized communities, um, which is in some ways an extension of that threats for hire problem. Um, I think you'll often hear the companies that offer these services claim that they're going after criminals and terrorists. Our own investigations have generally found that's not true. Hmm. I'm curious when you look at those threats that you just highlighted, um, the, the broad scope of them, and, and they are very interesting, like surveillance for hire and looking at some of those other aspects there. How have they kind of evolved over time for social media platforms, for Facebook, for other other platforms? Um, have you seen those kind of grow or where do you see this going in the future? One of the key um, things that drives these threat actors is that they are inherently adversarial. Um, and so when we, for example, take an enforcement action, it often, I mean, we, our goal is to drive them off of our platform, but it also means that those threat actors are going to move to other more permissive environments. So one of the key trends that we've seen has been a move both to use multiple platforms and specifically to try and leverage smaller platforms um, that may either not be able to or may not be uh, as aggressively looking for these types of threats. Um, an example would be an, an investigation our teams did into an operation that is called secondary infection, um, which was active across more than 300 different platforms on the internet, from social media platforms to messaging applications like Telegram, to Russia-based Russia, Russia -based social media platforms like Kontaktia and Naklasniki, to local you know, neighborhood forums in a bunch of different places in Europe. Um, that cross-platform problem is partly why we've been so focused on thinking about how to enable kind of cross-industry and cross-societal responses. 
Um, because ultimately, if these threats are moving to a more permissive environment, there's still the risk that some aspect of that operation comes back and affects our users. Um, and we all in this space have a responsibility for maintaining kind of the safety and security of the information space, um, which is why we've been in some of our reports, we both call out platforms we see involved and we work to share information with those platforms wherever possible. Um, the other trend that we've seen is a move to, I guess what I would call almost more Cold War uh, espionage type tactics where we've seen where threat actors are struggling to get traction online, a move to simply trying to engage directly with and recruit offline influencers, right? Prominent voices in particular communities, think tanks, the same type of thing you would have seen from KGB influence operations during the Cold War. I wanted to circle back real quick to your mm -hmm. point about discussing your data with other platforms and kind of being able to have that open line of communication. Um, I have a two-pronged question just around that. Mm -hmm. um, do you see other platforms being open to kind of hearing about these types of threats that are impacting their their users as well? And then also, what kind of awareness are you seeing when it comes to um, Facebook users themselves in terms of these security threats? Like, do you think that there is more awareness at this point in terms of um, what to look out for and how they can better protect themselves? So the first part of your question, I think we've absolutely seen um, a lot of improvement in cross-industry uh, threat information sharing over the past couple of years. Since about 2018, um, a large number of platforms, including some of the smaller platform companies, um, have met regularly both to share information about the types of threats that we're seeing in the in the broader uh, cybersecurity environment. And I think you've seen a lot more of this kind of standardized information sharing, both in our own reporting and reporting from some of the other security teams out there in the industry designed to enable this kind of kind of cross-industry action. So generally, I'd say there are definitely other interested uh, security teams out there and that we we work quite hard to share information with them. Um, and I think there's, there's certainly always more work to be done to help bring more of those um, in more of those types of platform security teams into the fold. I actually think the collaboration goes a little bit broader than just inside of the industry. Um, a really good example of how this collaboration can work in practicality is um, an investigation that we did, if I'm remembering correctly back in, I think it was March or May of 2020, um, into a network that originated in Ghana um, but that we ultimately were able to link to individuals associated with Russia's Internet Research Agency. And what happened there is, is a really interesting investigation was, so our teams were looking into suspicious activity linked to this network, um, fake account network active on our platforms. And uh, at least one other platform security team in the industry at another company was also investigating activity linked to this network on their platforms. Around the same time, um, OSINT researchers at Graphica and some other researchers were also kind of working on some of the data we had shared on the operation. And investigative reporters at CNN were chasing some leads into the Ghana-based troll farm that was ultimately behind the activity. And so what we were able to do is work with those partners to both kind of add additional information to the investigation. And what ended up happening was we released a report. We were able to link this activity to those individuals associated with the IRA. Um, 
And at the same time, the CNN reporters were able to walk up to the front door of the troll farm in Ghana and walk up to the guy that was running it and confront him in Russian about what he was doing in Ghana. And that type of, I think, not just cross-industry collaboration, but cross-sectoral collaboration between platform investigators, investigative journalists doing kind of the hard gumshoe work of actually tracking these types of people down um, is a great example of how effective we can be when we work together. Yeah, I, I love that story because um, you're also right that I feel like sometimes security, the security industry is in its own kind of silo. And so it's important to kind of reach out beyond that. Okay, well, uh, before we wrap up here, I wanted to ask, um, and we talked a little bit about kind of the threats uh, that you're most aware of right now. Are there any kind of future threats that you're concerned about in 2023 that are keeping you up at night or anything that we should uh, kind of be aware of? So the team is, as you can imagine, laser focused on preparing for the elections. Um, We've already been working quite hard on the Brazilian elections, the Philippines elections. Um, We, of course, have the U.S. midterms coming up. Um, And though, you know, we've certainly seen a couple of operations that are we've taken down around, for example, the midterms just three weeks ago, we published a report into two coordinated inauthentic behavior networks. One of those was originating from China and did target American audiences around political issues ahead of the midterm elections. But I think the the important takeaway was that operation was very small, only a handful of assets and not very successful. I think they had something like 20, follow, uh, 20 followers across their pages or something to that effect. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think what, I, what we're actually, you know, spending a lot of time thinking about right now is something we call perception hacking. Um, and this is something we saw concretely in the 2018 elections. And it's when a threat actor essentially tries to capitalize on the expectation of foreign interference, um, the expectation that there's going to be troll farms in every nook and cranny to undermine confidence in public discourse more broadly, to undermine confidence in elections more broadly. In 2018, what we saw was a group claiming to be the Internet Research Agency that created a website. Um, on which they posted what would be, I think, charitably described as a manifesto, uh, claiming that hundreds of thousands of Russian trolls were in every group on Facebook and Twitter and everywhere else, and everyone you talk to is a Russian troll, you can't trust anything, and also here's all the candidates that we're working with to hack your elections. Now, there wasn't really any truth to their claims. There were a handful of accounts that we took down, for example, that didn't really seem to do much. Um, But what they then tried to do was reach out to a bunch of reporters to say, this is the story the tech companies are trying to hide from you. The elections were broadly hacked. You can't trust the results. Now, thankfully, I think a lot of people were on guard in 2018 and the election, that story didn't get much traction. Um, But we've seen that tactic come back, right? In 2020, we saw a Iranian operation that attempted to masquerade as the Proud Boys, um, similarly claiming a widespread interference in the election. Um, And so I think what, what we're focused on here is obviously we have to stay vigilant and continue looking for actual operations targeting the elections. At the same time, we across society have to be careful not to take the bait if threat actors are out there trying to essentially turn us into our own worst enemies um, and make sure that whatever we are putting out, our own assessments, our own um, concerns about the election are grounded in good research and good facts. I'm sure the midterms are are absolutely top of mind. So um, David, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast and uh, talking a little bit more about your background and kind of what you do. And I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Lindsay. It's been a pleasure. While you were hacking the planet, I was trying to decipher why.